Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hello, Stacey. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. Welcome to Thoughts on Record. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I've been looking forward to this conversation for uh, for a long time since we originally spawned having it, I don't know how long ago. I think years ago almost. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I thought, hey, would you ever do a podcast one day? This will be something really interesting to uh, to talk about. And it feels like in this particular topic, so much has happened even since that initial conversation. Yeah, definitely. Right. So, I mean, just so f- what the listener knows that we're going to be talking about, I'm probably going to have to name this podcast after the fact, because I'm not exactly sure where the conversation will go in its totality. Mm-hmm. But the, the broad topic is um, psychedelics in the context of psychotherapy, a really interesting area of, uh, of emergent study and science and, uh, and, and therapy. And I've, I, I personally have just found it fascinating to watch the evolution of this space. And how quickly it's been going. Uh, so much has happened in such a short period of time. Um, we can talk about the history, I suppose, as we as we chat today. But, uh, you know, it began in the, the 50s and 60s and then just was on total pause. And in the last probably, what, 10, 20 years, things have just uh, spiraled. So it's wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah, there's that initial flurry and explosion. It was almost like, oh, my God, this is too dangerous. Put it back. Mm-hmm. And then, it's like you said, it's just, it's just laid dormant. And we're, uh, you know, it seems like there, we're, we're wrapping our heads around this particular tool and, and what it can do and what it can't and the dangers and all those things. I guess just probably an important disclaimer before we get going. And uh, Stacey, if I miss anything here, just please jump in that you feel might be salient for, for folks too. We're going to be talking about psychedelics. Um, this would include things like MDMA, although that's not strictly considered a psychedelic for the purposes of this conversation, we'll regard it as one. Uh, psilocybin, LSD, aboga, uh, DMT in its various forms. It also shows up and typically ayahuasca, although so there, there are ways of administering DMT uh, outside of that ceremony. Um, none of those compounds are legal at the moment. Uh, so we want to make that perfectly clear. These are all in, in Canada at the very least. These are illegal. Uh, we're in no way advocating that people procure or use these. There are real risks. Uh, the, the principal risks are uh, for folks who are vulnerable to uh, psychosis, mm-hmm. uh, as well as some other forms of mental illness. But psychosis is the principal one. Uh, folks who have a vulnerability or who are ex- experiencing substandroma or active symptoms uh, are, are strongly discouraged from using these compounds recreationally. And in fact, it's typically a rule out for people participating in a, in a research study. Exactly. Um, perhaps we can talk at some point too about, you know, some of the information sources that are out there. Um, you know, there are websites such as safetrip.com. Um, that said, though, no recommendation of using any of these substances as they are illegal and as they carry high degree of risk. That's right. And any studies that are going on with them are, are very tightly controlled. Of course, they've got to go through research ethic board approval. It's done, as we'll talk about, typically with at least a couple of clinicians. People are, are screened for different, different risk factors. So uh, where it's a very, very emerging area, uh, you know, rightfully so, there's a lot of caution being uh, exercised. I would also, you know, want to say as part of this discussion right up front is that, you know, I'm a psychologist registered with the College of Psychologists of Ontario. Uh, and as, as far as the scope of practice issue goes, I have no specific expertise in, according to the province of Ontario, around uh, medication or pharmacology or anything like that. 
so many of the things that I'll be speaking to today, I'll be speaking to as an essentially an uneducated member of the, of the public uh, who, who personally has an interest in these and who also happens to be a psychologist. Uh, Stacey, do you want to do you want to clarify your status and, and what that may mean for the kind of information that you're imparting today? Yeah. Um, so I'm also operating uh, as a general member of the public in this conversation. Uh, currently, I am a CBT therapist here at the clinic um, in my kind of final stages of training to become a registered clinical psychologist. Um, but again, uh, operating as somebody who with an interest in this topic, um, who has some colleagues in the area of research uh, in this uh, domain, which has kind of sparked my interest, right. but, but uh, not at as a clinician in this conversation. Right, ex exactly. I think it's just it's just really clear for the listeners to know where where we're situated in the midst of this discussion so that all the information can be considered really critically. Uh, there, there will be times though, where we, I think we're going to try and speak to, you know, based on our clinical experience, uh, you know, how we can envision some of the benefits of these kind of compounds perhaps being integrated based on some of the research that's coming out. So one thing I want to do with the with the podcast, as we were chatting about before, is uh, I do want to give people the opportunity to get to get to know our clinicians here a little bit more. Uh, I think we have a lot of really interesting, talented folks here. Of course, you would be one of them. So, Thank you. <laughs> so um, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your you know, journey towards clinical psychology? Yeah, I think uh, my whole life I've wanted to do something in a helping profession. I think when I was younger, I conceptualized that more as being a physician or a nurse or something to that uh, effect. Um, and to be quite honest, I was just really bad at math. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, I found psychology. Um, I've always been really interested in humans more so than anything, I think, else. Uh, like observing people, like kind of understanding how people tick. Um, and so that led me to psychology. Psychology. I think when I started my training uh, as an undergrad, I had no concept of what becoming a psychologist would look like. Um, I remember finding out that grad school was minimum six or seven years and being quite shocked, <laughs> finding out all the research uh, component of becoming a psychologist that was involved and not, not understanding that. Um, but developing along the way and really developing a love for research, developing um, a deeper understanding of what this profession uh entails. And uh, yeah, and I think I started off as a more of an EFT therapist, uh, so emotion-focused therapy for those right. who don't know the definition. Um, my, my training is, my master's was really in emotion-focused therapy, where you do a lot of focusing um, on the emotion, uh, <laughs> coincidentally, um, a, a lot more kind of sitting with it, um, uh, maybe a little bit more silence, a little bit more kind of processing, uh, a little bit more in your body and out of your head. Uh, I've now I'm working at the uh, Auto Institute for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, so I'm I'm doing a lot more CBT as well. But I feel like my background in EFT is perhaps what led me to this interest. Uh, or I find a lot of similarities between the research that's being done in, in psychedelic therapy and some of the the tenants of EFT uh, that I was trained in. That's so interesting. Uh, just as a sidebar of my own curiosity here, what is the proposed mechanism of change in EFT? What 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 is being manipulated in order to get the, the clinical outcome that you want. So you're using emotion to change emotion. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to access um, unaccessed emotions. Um, and so uh, as a kind of simple example, oftentimes we express a secondary emotion um, more easily than the, the primary emotion. The secondary emotion being um, the emotion that's a reaction to our actual emotion. So for example... Like a judgment of some kind. Exactly. Right. So if I'm feeling... Um, sad and it's not safe in my environment to feel sad, I might present as angry. And so if we sit with the anger and focus on it and try to go towards it, 
um, and you do some work with moving it, we can eventually access the underlying sadness, which is the core emotion that fits the situation. Um, and in accessing that, we feel resolved and, and uh, a bit more at peace. Oh, that's so interesting. And it really actually maps onto the, uh, the effective neuroscience literature, mm-hmm. uh, effective with an A, uh, in case my pronunciation is, is, is unclear there. Um, yeah, you've got, so, you know, I'm always telling clients, you've got, you know, your anger system and your fear system and they antagonize one another. It's very hard to experience both at the same time, but anger is the sidecar to the fear motorcycle. It always need, it always needs those carrier emotions to show up. I like that analogy a lot. Yeah, it, I mean, I guess there's probably some instances where anger would show up independently, but I mean, ultimately, if you if you drill down underneath of it, there's typically a f- it, it only arrives in the context of fear, right, or hurt, like fight or flight. Exactly, that's right. So neurobiologically, they they inhibit one another, and uh, anger is just you know, uh, with a lot of my trauma clients, they'll t- you know, anger is just so much more of a preferable state to be in than to be uh, anxious or hurt. Right. So they, you know, I, I really see a resonance with the model that you're talking about there where people have to first connect with their anger and then get underneath it. Exactly. And see what's really, really driving that. And another kind of similar, you know, the parent can be guilt, uh, guilt for feeling another emotion. So if we can get through the guilt to access the true emotion. Um, yeah, all of these pairings that we tend to, to carry around, we're not feeling what we actually are meant to feel. And then um, we feel unresolved. And so the goal is to kind of access the underlying emotions so that we can feel more resolved. Oh, that's so interesting. And I think, you know, this, is, it feels like that a lot of that's going to come up later in the, uh, in our discussion as well. Um, yeah, it, it sounds like making people whole again, you know, and, and yeah. not having things, uh, it's sort of, I don't want to get too new, new agey in terms of speaking to it in that way, but it does sound like you, you know, there's, when you judge parts of your experience and render them to the basement, let's say, um, they're going to be operating anyway. And then you're going to get all the consequences associated with that without any of the ability to integrate and manage. That, that's my intuition around that. Right. And then I, I tend to conceptualize it as then, you know, exactly like you're saying, they're all living there. And then we just sort of find bigger and stronger ways to avoid them. Right. And so I conceptualize a lot of mental health symptoms as strategies for avoiding these underlying emotions. Um, and after a while, you know, our avoidance strategies are not working anymore. Right. And we reach a breaking point. And that's usually what and uh, clients up in therapy. Right. Um, so we want to go towards instead of avoiding um, and then working through instead of right. uh, over, overpassing. Right. It's really interesting that, you know, all the emotions that we experience ultimately map onto a series of drives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people don't question the fact that they're hungry or that they're thirsty or things like that, right? Imagine if you tried to suppress right. indefinitely your hunger or your thirst or sexuality, or mm-hmm. things of that nature. Um, we can just intuitively imagine all the untoward effects that would happen as a function of that. So, you know, uh, suppressing anger or gu- guilt or fear, I can't imagine that would end up any different. Exactly. In fact, that's the exact, exact analogy I give to my clients so often is, you know, every emotion is meant to be kind of like hunger. Or so we've got kind of a physiological sensation in our body that we then interpret. It tells us that some kind of need drive uh, needs to be met. And if we meet the need, then it, it returns to baseline. Um, so again, if we imagine we were hungry and we didn't know how to respond to that effectively and we went for a run, well, we wouldn't feel hungry for a bit. We'd probably distract ourselves enough to avoid the hunger, but we come back from the run and the hunger returns probably greater. So we take a nap and sure enough, when we wake up, it's still there and greater. And eventually the consequences of hunger would be so severe that we'd have no choice but to, well, we'd 
get ill or we would right. address it. But with emotions, it's a lot easier to build up avoidance um, and use strategies to numb them out for long term, um, which then, you know, 30 years down the line, well, not even 30, but any time down the line results in problems. And then those patterns of avoidance become so ingrained that right. we don't know any other way. I remember li- uh, recently listening to a podcast where they talked about, <clears throat> I think it's uh, the, the fellow's name is Penny Baker. He's done a lot of work on journaling mm-hmm. and the importance of writing about traumatic uh, events and experiences. And he had folks who had been, uh, who were Holocaust survivors, uh, journal about their experiences or not. And the, uh, the, the folks who had journaled about their experiences went to the doctor way less over the, over the course of a year than the folks who, who did not. So, you know, I think, uh, most listeners, if they're psychologists would be familiar with that book, the body keeps the score. Right. And I think that's really, really true. Right. I think those emotions, energy in motion, right. That energy just ends up displacing itself somewhere in the body and that's going to come out in your physiological weak link, right? It might be an immune problem or cardiovascular or endocrine or chronic pain. There's just so many places that goes. Exactly. And there's so much research tying that link uh, to, from the body to to uh, repressed emotions. Um, they've done studies of, of female cancer patients where they've biopsied, or sorry, I guess women with lumps in their breasts and they biopsy the lumps and they can predict based on a score, a measure of repressed anger, whether the tumor is going to be benign or malignant um, based on their score for repressed anger. So we, you know, exactly you're saying the energy doesn't go away. It just gets stored somewhere else. That is amazing. Um, I I think Gabor Mate speaks quite a bit about this, right? Like it's always the helpers that get sick. Exactly. Right. His book, um, when the body says no, right. Is all about that, that uh, topic. Right. I mean, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking like, Hmm, who might that apply to in this room? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Carers. Yeah. So, So, I, I mean, I think as, as, as psychologists, therapists, um, you know, mental health providers, whoever's listening to this, who's in a helping profession, man, I think you got to be really on top of the, that emotional debris that can build up and look for signs in your body. If your sleep starts to erode, if you've got weird, unexplained symptoms going on, uh, just generally your health is not well, frequent illness. I mean, these are things I'm at, as you would know, as one of my supervisees, you know, I always check onto these things with, with people who I'm working with, because it's one of the, it's, even if they won't acknowledge it, it's one of the ways that we know that people are struggling. Yeah. You know, their body will just tell us. Exactly. Right. I've never had more back problems uh, since starting this program. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, for sure. No, uh, been, been there, done that in terms of, you know, having that insight and realization about the impact of uh, unexpressed and unrealized emotions on physiology. Right. And, and again, just looping back to our actual topic here at some point. <laughs> <laughs> We've devolved. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's going to be a really important part of the discussion, right? Is how these psychedelic medicines uh, appear to uh, allow people to access parts of themselves that have been shut off, essentially. And exactly. then they get all the benefits of, you know, the, the research is suggesting that they may get all of the benefits that we are talking about especially in the context of trauma or existential anxiety around dying from cancer or things of that nature. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So shall we dive in? Let's dive in. Let's do it. I think we've circled the, uh, we've circled it for long enough, but I actually think it's good. I'm glad that you brought up your EFT training because that's one of the reasons I think why I wanted to have this conversation with you. And then also I think it sets the stage for, it's such an important mechanism that it help will help people contextualize and understand why we have this interest in this uh, emerging field of study. Right. Thank you. Okay. 
why the interest in psychedelics and psychotherapy? How did, how did it get on your radar? And, and um, maybe tell me a bit about that journey for yourself. Yeah. So during my master's training, um, one of my uh, supervisors um, became involved in the research uh, re related to psychedelics, um, specifically related to uh, ayahuasca um, and using ayahuasca ceremonies to for the treatment of various different, more difficult to treat um, issues. But I had never heard of really psychedelics prior to that, especially not ayahuasca. It's a big, long word. I yeah. never heard of it. Right. Um, something that I had not been interested in, you know, in my prior to that. Um, but she sold it really well and, uh, I was curious. And so, uh, I started doing a lot more reading from that time on. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, the more I do work clinically and, and see these populations that can be a little bit more treatment resistant, um, see individuals who have been in therapy for a really long time who, you know, perhaps are coming to my door and they've already been seeing therapists for 15 years. Um, so I came from a background in research with eating disorders, mm -hmm. um, which are typically a treatment resistant population. Um, eating disorders tend to be egosyntonic, meaning, uh, especially anorexia. So anorexia nervosa. So the, meaning the, the disorder is, feels good <laughs> in some ways, right? It's, the person's aligned with the symptoms. They're invested in, in what they're feeling. Exactly. It's, it's not promoting as much distress as it might be in say OCD or panic, something like that. Exactly. Okay. So there, there tends to be a little bit less motivation for change. Right. Um, and so, so my former supervisor was really interested in that difficulty specifically is how do we get individuals who are not motivated for change to change eating disorders, particularly being the most lethal of, of all mental health disorders, uh, the highest risk for suicide of all mental health disorders, um, with a 20% mortality rate due to malnutrition or suicide. Yeah. Um, so how do we get these people to treatment because they're at risk of actually dying and they're literally kind of de composing in front of you or, or decompensating uh, right. in front of you when they don't want help. And so we have to ethically uh, give them, you know, they have free will and they're allowed to choose treatment, but how do we work around this? Because are they actually choosing to be ill or is the illness making them choose to be ill? And just as a quick sidebar, I mean, that's something that kind of haunts me in every single, you know, presentation that I see. So when you have someone who's really depressed, let's say, and, you know, we, we might get, um, you know, there, there might be sort of, we frame it as a therapy interfering behavior in terms of not participating in behavioral activation or whatnot. I mean, always stuck like, where does the line between that person's illness end and then their volition take over? And right. Exactly. And it's such a tricky spot for us yeah. um, because yeah. I, and I don't know the answer. I, I don't that. think anybody does. Right. I mean, we could get into free will and, and, you know, if the brain is the organ of the mind and someone has depression, then how, you know, on some level, how could we expect that they could just manually override that, which their brain is providing. But anyway, it gets complicated really quick, but it's, it's such an interesting conundrum. I think that we interface with, with exactly. no clear answer. Exactly. And so I think, um, you know, my previous supervisor had developed some models where we treat the carer, the parent, so that they can treat uh, or provide support for their individual who doesn't want to seek care. Um, and then I think psychedelics were brought into the mix as a potential avenue. So psychedelics seem to be, and the research seems to be going on in, in mostly treatment-resistant populations are more challenging to treat populations. So they're using it now for uh, chronic depression, PTSD. Uh, there is some research going on with eating disorders or beginning to go on with eating disorders um, and um, 
uh, substance use. Right. And so, um, you know, psychedelics perhaps offers an insight for the, uh, a way to open um, access to motivation or willingness to change or, or seeing maybe a, a bigger picture of life that these individuals with chronic anorexia aren't able to access through typical therapy. Right. Um, and so that was... Uh, I think I kind of lost where we started here, but that was kind of the initial, what drew me to the research on, on psychedelics. Right. A couple of things that you just said that remind me of reading uh, Michael Pollan's new book and talking about the, it seems to be these uh, psychological disorders that have rigidity embedded in them that tend to, you know, represent sort of the most salient clinical targets at the moment where people are sort of stuck in that. Are you familiar with the default mode network? From a neuroscience perspective? Is Vaguely. That, yeah, and, and that's about, about where my knowledge ends too, that, that it exists. But basically, it's a, it's a network that uh, spans the brain that really seems to be uh, uh, deterministic of a sense of self. And what these psychedelics appear to do if you put people in a brain scanner is that it turns off that default mode network so that people can uh, access uh, or construct reality in a, in a way that doesn't inv- involve them in terms of all their conventional sort of maybe schemas or core beliefs, just really gives them an outside, you know, look in at themselves, their relationships, where they sit in the universe, potentially things of the nature. Interesting. Yeah. I I wasn't, I I feel like uh, the mechanisms of of the psychedelics is something that I sometimes struggle to understand. Um, But it's my understanding that they also are really involved in neurogenesis. And so not only are you opening up um, these new, you know, uh, visualizations of yourself and, and the world um, and kind of maybe taking a step back from your current default and, and right. seeing a bigger picture, but then you're, you've got neurons forming. So you're, you're rewiring the brain in this new way that has kind of a, a bigger picture of the world, not just your narrow rigid focus that you had prior to using the substance. Yeah, absolutely. And just, just to fill in a little bit of the neurons, neuroscience here, not that I'm an expert, I, you know, my background is in neuroscience, but I'm not an an expert on the neuroscience of psychedelics, but it does appear uh, that all of these compounds uh, ultimately are sort of tryptamines, right? Which there's, they're an- analogs of serotonin. Uh, they have a very strong affinity for the 5-HT2A receptor, uh, which is really found mostly in the cortex. Um, serotonin projections originate very deep in the brain and then they project up to other areas, but the five, and there's many types of serotonin receptors, but the 5-HT2A appears to be the one that these compounds interface with. And um, there's a, a neuroscientist, Robin Carhart, Carhart uh, Wright, I believe is his last name. I, I may have that wrong, but um, he does. he's basically sort of the leader in the, the neuroscience, the imaging of these psychedelics. And he's been able to show that when these 5-H, these 5-HT2A receptors really appear to be important for novelty change, uh, change in perspectives in the brain. And then when you activate them, you get a lot more interconnectivity uh, between different areas. So it's almost like it frees up the brain to start talking to itself in, in different ways, as opposed to that default mode network, which is very routinized and automatic and has a lot of pre-programmed prescribed thinking patterns in it. Wow. Which is such a like mechanistically, that's exactly what we're trying to achieve in therapy, traditional therapy, right? right. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. We're really trying to help clients become more flexible in their thinking. Um, I always use the analogy of like currently your current thinking is you've got a flashlight against the wall, you know, one inch away from the wall and you can just see that little circle. We, we want to kind of pull that flashlight back so that you can see a broader circle of what's possible. Um, and that can take a lot of sessions of therapy at times to get clients to be a bit more flexible, to see things a bit more 
broadly and then you know not just seeing it once but then kind of forming the connections and and really practicing that pattern of seeing a bigger a bigger circle whereas it sounds like psychedelics can kind of open that up quite quickly well there's this notion in consciousness about sort of you've got just to build on what you're saying there's spotlight consciousness was, you know, what basically what adults have, right? Like we, you know, we're very good at sort of zoning in on things. You know, we've had a lot of life under our belt. We we're pattern recognition machines and we're really optimized uh, or not optimized. If you're talking about, you know, schemas and things like that, where you, you, you're running the patterns very efficiently, but they're generating, you know, self-defeating outcomes. Whereas it seems like children uh, have a much more uh, what's called lantern uh, consciousness where, um, it's, instead of just a laser focus, they've got sort of more of a broadly lit sense of the world, right? That's why, also why they're so distractible, right? Right, Because like the whole, the environment's really just sort of stimulating them in so many different ways in a way that an adult would just block out. Right. Right. So, you know, children, it, anyway, we, this could be, that could be a whole other podcast, but it, it's I, in Michael Pollan's book, he talks about, you know, and this is the neuroscientist word, not mine, but children's consciousness is akin to sort of like a psychedelic state. You know, I don't think they're tripping, let's, let's say, but the way that they process and integrate information isn't nearly as prescribed as the adult default mode network, which has very much been like a deep groove that's been, you know, uh, cast into the person's mind. Right. And I suppose if we kind of define that, that psychedelic experience of these, you know, if we're comparing it to children, there's a, there's a sense of openness of being totally present and your attention kind of being in the moment. Um, there's some curiosity, uh, there's openness to new experience and Um, wonder. Yeah. Right. I mean, I have two small children and, uh, you know, them seeing, tadpoles for the first time or, you know, any, I can list basically anything <laughs> for, right. the, for the first time is interesting and novel and, and just, just amazing. Right. They don't have any, uh, for lack of a ter- better term, baggage in the way of seeing that thing. Right. And then, you know, we lose that somewhere. We, we start to uh, want to understand the world and kind of put everything into boxes um, and we become very afraid instead of curious. And so we approach newness with, uh, you know, it's uncertain. It's it's scary. It's it induces anxiety um, versus it being exciting and full of wonder and curious, um, which then can lead to some consequences down the road. I think of um, so here at the clinic, I'm, I'm involved in our DBT programs, dialectical behavioral therapy, and we do a lot of work on teaching people to you know almost be like a child in terms of describing your environment as it is with some curiosity, as opposed to planting the story on it that it's scary or bad or, um, you know, we practice non-judgment. So a lot of these tenets, I suppose, even of a psychedelic experience, not judging, um, being curious, being present, we, we teach as part of our, our DBT skills and, and as we teach mindfulness, uh, which is a core piece of DBT. Right. I'm really just struck the more I do this job, how powerful narrative is and how we're stuck in our stories, Yeah. you know, and how our clients are stuck in their stories and, uh, um, yeah, just being able to, you know, to author a different story or have a different window into maybe a plot line. Uh, it's just so therapeutic. Right. Which, um, perhaps should we, should we discuss kind of what a psychedelic therapy session based on the research that's being done now looks like? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it fits right into that idea of a story. Um, so as far as I, I understand, uh, at least with the MDMA, uh, assisted psychotherapy trials that are going on right now. Um, so 
there's trials, they're in phase three trials, or they've just finished phase three trials, if I'm understanding correctly, uh, with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for individuals with PTSD. Um, Do we want to say what MDMA is? Do you know the full word? I do not. It's methyl something something. <laughs> a long organic chemistry name. I mean, most people would probably be familiar with it uh, as the, the, the recreational drug ecstasy. Right. And uh, it's very actually molecular, molecularly close to crystal methamphetamine as well. It's a stimulant compound. And uh, I, I believe the major contraindication there for uh, MDMA is cardiovascular. There, people's blood pressure needs to be monitored and anyone with a cardiovascular condition um, may be not able to participate in, a, in that kind of therapy. Right. And another risk is hyperthermia. So overheating, right. um, probably related to cardiovascular issues as well. Um, and, and the effects of MDMA, as far as we know, is it, it almost uh, unanimously produces a... Um, kind of a positive, loving, open feeling um, versus some of the other psychedelics, uh, such as psilocybin, which uh, mushrooms, which uh, not can't, can, there's some variability in the emotional response that, that's uh, induced by them. Whereas- that's right. I, I believe most psychedelics are, uh, besides MDMA, uh, are broadly considered their non-specific consciousness expanders. Right. So whatever mood you happen to be in, you're just going to get more of that mood potentially. Right. And it's, it's sometimes unpredictable, although, as we'll talk about, I think I'll, I'll let you continue with the MDMA protocol, uh, so-called set and setting are critical right. elements of crafting that experience. Uh, and, and research protocols really do appear to um, treat those as active ingredients in the treatment. Right. Right. Which I'd like to talk about at the end of today of kind of what we can learn from the protocols being used for psychedelics in terms of our own therapy. Because I think we tend to ignore those kinds of things in our own work. Um, So yeah, back to MDMA. Yes, please Um, continue. (laughs) So it tends to always induce kind of a a positive feeling. I know, uh, you know, I know very little about the neuroscience, but I know that with the serotonin, um, uh, there's also an oxytocin effect. And so we know oxytocin is uh, the bonding hormone and so produces kind of a loving, caring effect. Um, And so when they're using it for research uh, for for psychotherapy, um, as far as I know, they do three preparatory sessions with the client um, to form an alliance with a therapist. Um, There's always two therapists in the the therapy session when they're doing um, the PTSD work, a male therapist and a female therapist. Yeah, I've read that as well. What's what's the thinking behind the, uh, particularly the male and the female? So, um, especially when we're working with trauma, I, I think I think they're going to try to to uh, wean it down to see if that's always necessary. But for right now, in the MDMA sessions, there's very little talking, or, or at the very most, there's fifty percent talking. So the actual MDMA sessions are eight hours long. It's a client in a room with some music on, and the two therapists kind of just sitting there, as far as I understand, talking when they want to talk, not talking when they don't want to talk all video recorded. So the client doesn't have the pressure of remembering what happened in the session. Right. Um, they can go back and play the tapes later. So there's no no pressure to kind of hold things in mind. So they have the two therapists there. So the client can kind of project whatever's going on inside of them in terms of reprocessing their story on whichever um, gendered individual they need to, and for the sense of safety. Um, so if I'm, I'm, I don't know if there's, they're using this with sexual assault survivors, but I can only imagine if there's a male therapist only in the room and, and somebody's going into their sexual assault trauma, um, that could be kind of scary. And so we've got both uh, genders there so that there's a, um, 
a point of projection for each and then the sense of safety, if I'm understanding correctly. Where do things go from there? So I believe there's the three sessions to get to know the client, uh, to build a little bit of an alliance with the therapists, to give them a sense of what to expect, um, to kind of go over the risks and, uh, you know, benefits so that they feel as safe as they can going into the session. Um, and then they do the eight hour MDMA session. So they would take a dose. As far as I understand, the optimal dose is uh, 75 milligrams of MDMA is what they're finding to be the most effective at, at present. And I believe for context, that is much less than a recreational dose that people would take. Sometimes it's upwards of 200 milligrams. Uh, also, in also uh, recreational use is also hampered by impurity. And frequently when you're using it recreationally, I imagine then it's laced with things like um, amphetamines with speed right. um, and other substances. Uh, you know, And we know about the fentanyl crisis going on in Canada and, and North America currently. And so you don't know what you're getting when you procure substance like this recreationally. Right, right. When they're using it for research purposes, it's a pure batch. Um, I know the organization that's doing these studies just bought a kilo of MDMA that they're going to be using. They've got 8,000 doses that they're going to be I think it's 8,000 doses um, that they're going to be using for individuals uh, to do these, this research. Um, so they're given a dose. I think they're given an option of a half dose halfway through the session if the client chooses that they want more. And then they're just allowed to sit there and, and talk if they want to talk and not talk if they don't want to talk. And it's very client-led. And so in terms of set and setting, which you mentioned, I just wanted to to highlight. So the, there's music on with no words. Um, so they're really trying not to guide the client in any way. Um We'll talk a little bit about ceremony use perhaps later, but in ceremony, the shaman guide you with, uh, it's called ikoros, the uh, the singing and chanting um, and music played during an ayahuasca ceremony, but in the MDMA uh, sessions to kind of keep it neutral, it's um, uh, lyricless music um, and the client's given the opportunity to talk if they want to talk or not talk if they don't want to talk. And the therapists are just kind of validating and being there with them and perhaps kind of asking some questions, but really not leading in any way. I have a, just a question for, if you don't know the answer is totally fine. It's even if just the intuition um, music is very right brain oriented and that's tends to be sort of regarded as the more emotional hemisphere, although it's, it's really complicated. There's some speculation that, you know, music, singing, melody might even predate language. Mm. It, it might be sort of the progenitor of that. How critical does that music piece, you know, seem to be to that set and setting piece? Because this shows up over and over and over again, right? Right. Whether it's ceremony or in a research study, like there's rhythmic beating or, or music or, you know, and, and some of it's described as sort of that annoying sort of spa, I'm going to have a music. <laughs> right. <laughs> Or, you know, it could be more. Anyway, music seems to show up over and over and over again. Do you have an intuition around, you know, why that is? Or have you have you heard it explained? You know, what's the thinking around that? Does it just seem intuitive to include that as part of the experience? Yeah, well, I know um, I know a little bit about kind of the rationale for using it in ayahuasca ceremony. So the shaman using the, the chanting in the ikaros. Um I think to think of it like when we're when we're infants. So where do we learn how to regulate our emotions? Well, we're soothed by our, our parents and our loved ones when we're young, and then we internalize that soothing. So we learn how to respond to our own emotions over time. How are we soothed when we're infants? Well, we're rocked and we're sang to, right? Like we're that's kind of how we calm children. And so I'm imagining, you know, my understanding of it is it's. Um, you can use it to guide, I guess, the the, the tempo. We know that, like, tempo and, and uh, oh gosh, I'm so not a music person. Um, <laughs> my partner would be very disappointed right now. Um, but, you, you know, the 
whatever the key that you're in can induce certain emotions. And so perhaps, you know, you can guide them towards a certain type of feeling using different types of um, music. But then I just think of it in terms of creating a safe space and a soothing space to be able to access those really deeply painful emotions. Yeah, soft music that feels like soothing, that feels like a lullaby, uh, that kind of makes sense to me. Yeah, that makes sense to me as well. And, uh, you know, again, quick sidebar, but I mean, I'm just, I'm a musician, as you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, or at least aspire to be one, <laughs> maybe just a failed one. How about we, how about we put it there? <laughs> I think there's a schema coming up. Oh, there's always schemas coming up. <laughs> but I mean, I think, um, it's amazing to me that a minor key would reliably evoke a certain mood versus a major key right? versus, you know, maybe a certain tone versus, you know, the, the, the sound of a piano with reverb versus a cello in a dry room or, or whatnot. Right. So, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, I think that's a whole area of study unto itself. There's a, I have a book, I mean, I'm meaning to read the, your brain on music. Okay. And, uh, I think there's something very deep and powerful about that mechanism the me- of which I cannot describe or don't know. Right. Uh, yeah. And I guess similarly, I don't know that I know the mechanism, but I've, I recently heard on a podcast, them talking about the effects of f- vibrations, right? We're just water vibrate. Like we're all just vibrations. Right. You can break glass with a certain pitch or vibration right. of sound. What's happening in t- inside us when we are matched with a certain vibration of music. Right. So I don't know the answer, but something to think about. It's something, well, it's, it's, it's really interesting to, I mean, look at when, if anyone's been to a concert or an electronic dance music festival or anything of that nature, I mean, people are really transported right. to, uh, I mean, we're going to, you know, dating myself here, but grunge concerts in the nineties and crowd surfing and, you know, just, there's a certain level of mania that sort of takes over temporarily Right. And not necessarily anything to do with substances, but just the, the experience and the people and the energy and the, you know, the, the music ultimately. Exactly. Well, and, and I've been to some uh, sound healing experiences where you sit in between uh, four gongs and people bang these gongs and it takes <laughs> you kind of on a bit of a journey. But it, it, it no, I bet. Wow. I imagine it would, you know, I, I don't know about psychedelic experiences, but I can only imagine it would be kind of similar um, when you're just totally surrounded by sound. So there's so much power of sound that I feel like I don't understand, but uh, we've all kind of, I can probably think of experiences where we've felt that power. Yeah. I mean, we just intuitive, my last comment, I guess, on it, we, we just even just, you know, have people over for dinner. It, it seems like anytime humans get together, they will use music as a mood modulator right so there's some there, there's something there exactly you know, so we can speculate as to what but uh, let I'm, i mean so I, I think we made the point <laughs> music matters <laughs> so check yeah exactly what are some of the other thoughts or things that people need to know about that mdma uh protocol and some of the thinking behind that yeah, so I think what I found the most interesting about it is the fact that there's so little talking and sometimes there's no talking and sometimes there's talking that happens that is completely different than what we would expect, so I, I guess, you know, you and I doing work with individuals with PTSD, we typically go, eventually aim to go into the trauma and go over the trauma over and over again. And from what I'm hearing from the MDMA studies is that it's not always that that comes up. It's maybe something else that came up that was really meaningful and emotionally evocative for the client. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have an opportunity to talk through some of that. And then after the session, um, they're kind of cared for for a bit after the MDMA is worn off. So the effects of MDMA, if I'm recalling correctly, are somewhere between four and six hours. I believe the sessions are eight hours. And then they are given some, you know, care 
afterwards. And then the clinician calls them every day for a week afterwards. And then they do several follow-up sessions thereafter. Um, and they're really kind of held by the clinician in a way that's sounds almost more like a parent, like more involved than I think we would be as traditional therapists who see our right. clients maybe once a week for an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of integration. I think there's maybe three MDMA sessions altogether over the span of a couple of months, um, but three eight-hour sessions, a couple of integration sessions, and uh, a couple of preparatory sessions. But it seems to be the effects are happening quite quickly. Um, and they do therapy differently than us in the sense that there's this set and setting component and there's this integration and kind of care, like hand holding afterwards component that we don't always do. That's so interesting. Um, I think that's one point we can just make right now is that the, uh, the psychedelic research tends to indicate that you get very strong um, effects with small doses yes. or frequency of dose, I should say. Exactly. So often in, in many of the psilocybin studies, it, like you get it one dose, that's it. Exactly. Typically about 25 milligrams of psilocybin, um, which maps onto uh, five grams roughly of psilocybin mushrooms, which is the quote unquote hero's journey. And, um, you know, but you get these long lasting uh, effects and, you know, uh, trait openness, for instance, you know, will move a standard deviation in somebody. Right. And, and, and that change will be there a year later. And uh, I know tr- treatment of uh, cigarette use a year later, uh, remission from like no, no cigarette use for a year after one dose of psilocybin. Right. So the, there's, there's something going on with these. You, know, you had mentioned neurogenesis before. Uh, integration is also a really important part of this. I, I had heard one metaphor which really st- struck with me or stuck with me, I should say, of, uh, you know, you shake up the snow globe. And then, but you do have some power over determining how the snow falls down. Okay. You know, after it's been stirred up. That's a beautiful metaphor. Yeah, which, that, I, w- I was really struck by that. What does that integration involve? Because that that's a process that would be really familiar to us as, as psychologists, right? I mean, we sort of, you know, in, in my line of work, I do a lot of exposure work. And it's not enough to do the exposures. You've got to do a lot of processing after the fact to try and get a shift in the person's beliefs and then ultimately behaviors. Right. So do um, do you have a sense of what that integration process looks like? That's a really good question. Uh, I don't know. I I think I'm assuming that it would be kind of therapy as usual. So now that you've had this shaking of the snow globe and everything's kind of up in the air, let's try to make sense of each piece of snow. Let's figure out how it integrates into your life. How do you make changes? Because sometimes, as we see with all of our clients, sometimes you know, things come up in therapy, in any kind of therapy that mean you have to make big life changes or it could lead to big life changes um, that can be challenging to to deal with. And so as far as I'm understanding, it's just making sense of what came up and then integrating it into your day-to-day life and support through those changes. But I could be wrong. Right. I remember reading about this one uh, study getting ready for the podcast about, um, it was a psilocybin study where... um, a number of the participants decided to leave their marriages uh, okay. at a pretty high rate after having <laughs> the experience, which, you know, which brings up an interesting conundrum just around informed consent. Right. Right. Um, I mean, I almost feel like having this with schema therapy as well. When you tell people, it's like, hey, listen, we're we're going to be, you know, unlocking some pretty powerful uh, belief systems and, and unlocking insights about self-defeating patterns of behavior. You may ultimately choose to make a lot of modifications in your life as a function of that knowledge. Right. I I can only imagine based on what I've read about these psychedelic studies that, uh, including MDMA, 
that uh, similar forces may be at play. And, you know, and to what, ex- maybe just a rhetorical question, to what extent do we have to alert people to the life altering uh, insights that may come to them? Right. Yeah. And I don't know if there's an answer there. I think um, even yeah, I don't know. the insights that can come from these, particularly the psilocybin re- uh, studies where they're, you know, I think uh, MDMA seems to be a lot more of like a heart opening and an access to the fear, uh, avoided fears. Right. And so if we're using it for treatment of PTSD, there's a lot more access to the scary narrative. And I imagine the integration that would be kind of rewriting the narrative based on what's come up and writing a narrative that's more, uh, less feared and more cohesive with your current life. Right. Um, but with the psilocybin research, I think there's a lot more just like opening your mind and questioning um you know, what you believe to be true um, prior to to the experience. So with the psilocybin in particular, this seems to be kind of a mystical experience. It's described as ineffable, um, timeless, um, kind of opening in a lot of ways. Um, and I think the whole political kind of uh, issues around all of this research that happened in the 60s, so as a bit of background, um, Psilocybin was extracted from mushrooms, if I'm understanding correctly, in the 50s uh, by researchers at either Harvard's or Johns Hopkins. Um, I, I feel like it might be Johns Hopkins, but that's, um, I've got Harvard, Tim Leary, like I've yeah. got all the, all the characters are just merged into this one big soup in my mind. But right. yes, like in, in the 50s and 60s, psilocybin was extracted exactly. at some point, right? And they developed LSD. Um, again, don't know the full name for, for LSD, but, uh, you know, recreationally known as acid. Um, and so, uh, these, these substances were kind of becoming really popular and, and researched a lot in the fifties and sixties, uh, at these big universities. And again, kind of finding similar results to what we're seeing today, where there's, was a lot of, uh, positive results in terms of use for things like depression and substance use. Um, creativity as well. I mean, there, there was a yes. lot of, uh, there's this one famous study where a number of academics were asked to come in with a problem that they had been struggling with. They were given a, uh, a dose of uh, LSD, and many of them reported having breakthroughs, and they also reported long-lasting creativity well after right. uh, that single dose. And was it not Steve Jobs who was famously quoted as as um, attributing a lot of his successes to the use of, of LSD? Yeah, I believe I believe he's quoted as saying something like it was one, you know one of the most important experiences of, of his life. Yeah, well, I think the creativity piece then kind of fits into what the point I was trying to make. But um, if we're opening your mind with these substances in some way, I think the the political climate then got involved because. If we're challenging ideas that are known to be true, um, at least kind of the uh, conspiracy theory, I suppose, around the war on drugs that then started, you know, in right. the 60s was that, um, you know, there was some fear that perhaps these substances, if they became publicly available. And, and in all fairness, the researchers who were doing research in this domain at that time were not being careful about how they did their research. They were just kind of widely promoting the use of tune in, tune out. Or drop out something I'm, I'm yes, just and, and using the substances themselves, right? Which, which typically would not happen in, in, in a research study, right? Exactly, right. Um, and so they weren't being careful in their use, and so then uh, you know the political uh, Nixon uh, became involved, and there was this war on drugs, and all of the research was immediately shut down, um, and and all of these drugs became illegal, and uh, they took kind of some big uh, measures to kind of take them out of out of the culture because uh, you know the theory is that there was a fear that what if everyone took these and, and opened their mind and and they maybe challenged society as it is today well uh, yeah ab- absolutely i mean i think that's the that was the fear and the impression and if 
I was reading some of the accounts of the uh, one of the, the Johns Hopkins uh, Johns Hopkins uh, psilocybin study for uh, folks with terminal cancer, and one of the participants said everybody needs to experience this. If people did, there'd be no wars, there'd be just love, you know, things of that nature. That may not be a mentality that scales across the reality of the world, right. but but it's a window into the kind of perspective that I think these compounds appear to give people. Right. Uh, in the context of these studies. Because it sounds like, um, particularly the more traditional psychedelics, such as psilocybin and, and LSD, um, most often create this mystical experience, um, this sense of oneness with the universe, this sense of being kind of no different from others, um, often kind of a connection with nature, connection with some greater power, right. uh, highly spiritual and mystical experience. Um, and so, you know, that what that participant is saying, I can imagine if you feel very one with everyone, uh, you could understand how you would see that there'd be no wars. That, that's right. And, and one of the researchers talked about it as almost death practice. She she thought that that was one of the active ingredients in that, you know, most of us have this idea when we die, like, it, it's like, oh my God, I'm not going to, like, I won't be here. Like, that's too weird or, or you know, something like that. And speaking with clients who have a fear of death, it's that sort of, I just can't imagine that I wouldn't exist anymore. Right. Uh, so it appears like these, uh, these psilocybin experiences uh, in a high enough dose, and dose does seem to matter in terms of whether people have that mystical experience. Um they get that quote unquote dissolution of the ego often in uh, interesting visual sort of anal uh, metaphors right. or, or analogies. And what people, Michael Pollan talks about seeing himself sort of turn into a series of small squares and ultimately, you know, sort of get dispersed over a landscape as sort of a thin film of paint. He was gone, you know, and, and it, again, it's ineffable. I can't really understand it, you know, for, for the words that he's using and he will readily say that, Yes, of course, you can't understand unless you were there. Mm -hmm. uh, but it seems to be that it's a form. It's a, it's a it's a form of dying that people find very. It's not a form of dying, but it's it's analogous to it maps onto people's fear of dying in a way that really helps them settle around that process in some level. Right, and that, and the research on using it uh, for end of life care seems to suggest that people, after one experience with um, psilocybin, feel a lot more at peace with their with their death, um, and kind of are able to continue living in the best way possible with the, right. that fear. Right. Yeah. So for that one fellow, he felt like you know who I just referenced a second ago. He was like, well. I don't know how my life how long my life is going to be, but I'm going to make it all about loving people as much as possible. And he was able to reclaim meaning and see the upside to his time as opposed to just all the things that he was going to lose and had a sense that that stuff did actually didn't really matter as long as he was plotting himself along vectors of love towards, you know, people that matter to him. Right, which sounds so similar to kind of, I think, of acceptance and commitment therapy, where you're right. trying to uh, move towards the things that bring you meaning or value in life. Um, and again, a type of therapy that sometimes takes, it can be a very hard, you know, if we're talking about these ineffable things as a therapist trying to do this verbally, convince somebody or, or you know, guide somebody or, or gently push somebody towards this perspective that, um, you know, regardless of what you're going to lose, how do we appreciate what you have and what you can have. Right. Um, whereas it sounds like these experiences kind of pretty reliably uh, offer these to people quickly. I mean, I think what I would have come to appreciate doing this job is just how little we understand what influences us. 
you know, we have the CBT model, the five-part model, and, and that's great. We, we, can, we can often quickly and accurately conceptualize what's going on. But I do think there's a lot going on underneath the hood that we are just not aware of. And it sounds like these experiences might provide a portal into maybe some of the things that are at play, unresolved grief, traumatic experiences that are, you know, um, repressed on some level. Uh, it, it seems like they may provide a window to access those things so they can be dealt with. And then the person can move forward again, sort of in a, in a whole integrated uh, fashion. Exactly. Yeah. And I think uh, the, I, I feel like that's a really good point too, in terms of not understanding, like we don't know what we don't know. And, right. and we are scientists first and we, we as therapists and we try really hard to know and understand and apply models and theories to our, our clients. Um, but I think we're fooling ourselves if we, you know, claim to believe that we understand or that we know the way or that we can lead them to the way. Um, you know, sometimes we can, but uh, right. um, I think what I really take home from these studies with psychedelics is the therapists are there just as kind of a safe base um, as a, a pillar, um, as a, you know, an anchor to hold on to, but not necessarily guiding in any way, not necessarily claiming to know the answer or leading the client to an answer in any way, mm -hmm. just kind of being there as either, you know, something to reflect off of a mirror mm -hmm. of some sort, or just as a hand to hold, um, as the client does their own work and figures out on their own through all of this opening happening internally, um, and, you know, new networks forming and, and making sense of happening. Um, they figure out on their own what they need. Uh, you know, if we think of any other injury or illness, we trust our body's innate capacity to heal. We, we get a cut, we trust that it's going to heal, right. even if we don't understand how that happens. Um, and yet with the mind, we seem to think that um, we can take control and kind of force it to heal in some way. And, and perhaps sometimes that is true, but I think in the, these models of therapy, they're really modeling the client has the, the capacity within them. They just need access to it. And this right. maybe offers a way to access that. We, I think a lot of us regard ourselves as doing a lot of work in the therapy session, right? And, you know, above and beyond just maybe the, the delivery of content, there's a lot of, I don't say cajoling necessarily, but we're really trying to work hard to get people to sort of have a window into their internal experience based on maybe what we're intuiting based on our experience of them. Um, so, you know, people are really guarded. We end up doing a lot of work because they don't want to see or feel it. And it's almost like this antagonistic sort of dance that we're in, right? But it sounds like if you if you can get the guardedness out of the way, the therapist can just stand back and let the person do the work that they need to do and, frankly, can only do. Right. Right. And uh, I heard an analogy uh, for psychedelics recently that I felt was really fitting. So all of the medication that we use today, they originated from dyes. Like, I guess back in the day, um, they would develop dyes to dye like fabric and materials. Um, and then that is how they develop, they uh, discovered various medications that have now become um, MDMA and, you know, uh, various other meds. Um, Sounds like human progression. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Seriously>. <laughs> Let's start with yeah. commercial and turn it into medicine. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. And add a whole bunch of accidental serendipity and, you know, we like to think we're so linear and logical and everything's just a big happy or unhappy accident, it seems like. Exactly. Right. Uh, um, but I like the analogy of, uh, they use the analogy of dye. So if we take these medications, it, it uh, shows us what's within us that's hard to see otherwise. Mm. And so the, exactly what you're saying, um, typically our clients have a hard time seeing and us trying to get past their walls to help them see isn't always effective, but perhaps these medications offers um, kind of a, an agent that allows them to see what's going on inside more clearly. 
I'm also really struck by the length of the sessions. You know, mm-hmm. obviously there's a drug effect that they've got to encapsulate in the, you know, in the time. I mean, if I think about my average client, they're zooming here from, from work, rushing to find parking that doesn't exist in this neighborhood, trudging through snow, coming in at the last second, flying into my office. We've got 50 minutes and then they've got to go on with the, with the rest of their, their life, right? It's no wonder uh, that people can't really ground themselves in the, in, and, and open themselves in the way that they might need to in order to access some of these things. I mean, we do hour and a half sessions with prolonged exposure and that that's really helpful, but um, yeah, I'm just really wondering about the, you know, if we, if people had more time to ground and open themselves, how would that change things? Right. And again, that brings us back to the idea of set and setting, right? Like if we're giving them 50 minutes in an office in a stressful environment where they have to then leave and go back to work, is that the ideal set and setting for any kind of therapeutic work? I try to personally create a pretty comfortable space in, in my office, you know, mostly because I have to spend a lot of time in there. But I also, you know, I, I want my I want my clients to feel like welcome guests as well. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how much that's always on people's radars in terms of setting up their spaces. But um, I think space really does the space that you hold for the client really does make a big difference. Exactly. Physical and, and emotional. And I think, um, again, bringing it back to kind of what we can learn from this psychedelic research and applying to our own uh, practice, all of these inert variables that we don't necessarily typically consider that much in our typical practice. We talk so much about the theory and the, and the skills um, and less about these other things like set and setting, um, uh, like time. Um, another thing that I really found interesting with the psychedelic therapy research is the therapist, you know, we don't ask the client to do anything that we wouldn't do ourselves. Right. So I know in the MDMA studies, they do, the therapists do a session themselves mm-hmm. um, prior to becoming involved in it, you know, because it'd be very hard for the client to feel feel safe with somebody who's never felt that experience, given especially that these experiences are so ineffable. Right. Um, and so the the therapists do it and do their own work uh, through it. Um, I was listening to one podcast and they were saying, you know, how could we ever hold space for anybody um, if we haven't, you know, done deeply painful healing work on ourselves first? And I think that's something that's really highlighted in the psychedelic community versus um, not always as taught in the traditional therapy community. On a personal note, I just completely agree with the idea of having your emotional landscape as sorted as possible to hold space uh, for somebody. Agreed. Uh, I've done lots of therapy myself. I I believe that every psychologist should do therapy. Um, It's just a human need, I think, to be able to process grief, trauma, you know, whatever's going on. Just life is tragic enough as is that probably you need processing. Exactly. And I fully agree. And I think, um, you know, we need to be as, as a, just have done the work because how can we ask somebody to do something that we've never done ourselves, but absolutely as well to kind of clear our space as much. So we have more room to hold. Um, but I think in, in the, the psychedelics, it's, you know, that is a core tenant um, often it seems, whereas in our, at least in my clinical training, it was sometimes suggested, um, but it wasn't as widely pushed Perhaps I think I had made this point at a uh, directors of training meeting at at, at some point that uh, you know I, I and I believe you Ottawa spoke to this. There was a time in the in the history of the program where I believe therapy was uh, mandatory. 
Yes. Um, I, I do not believe that's the case at, the, at this point. No. Yeah, you can speak to that. I'm, I'm, I'm not too sure. But if I could wave a magic wand, I think I'd advocate for psychologists to do regular sort of therapeutic check-ins with uh, in, in, in a way that was helpful to them. And I think definitely students uh, should have access to it uh, in a way that makes it accessible. And obviously, time and money doesn't grow on trees. That's the big barrier. Right. Uh, and also, too, I think as, as clinicians, we, you know, we, it's a small community. Where do you go for help when you know all the helpers? Exactly. You know, that, that's a tough one. It's a challenge. And so, yeah, I think, uh, again, if we think of the models that are being applied here, they have a built-in training program that involves therapy for the therapists. Um, perhaps we could learn something from that in our traditional therapies as well. You would, um, I think, have a sense of this for my supervision model, but like, let's take care of the people who are taking care of people. Right. You know, let's train them how to take care of themselves and to have themselves sorted out, to know what their blind spots are, to know what they're going to do that's ultimately, ultimately going to lead to their burnout, but they don't even know it yet, or they, or, or worse, they're, they're reinforcing it or seeking reinforcement for it. Right. Perfectionism, you know, none of us are perfectionists. Good thing. <laughs> yeah. that, 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 or self-sacrificing or... Right. Or... Uh, Thinking or, we can heal people, everyone. <laughs> yeah. It, right. And and again, what, I think what we're drawing from this discussion, or certainly what I am, is that if you give, you know, potentially with the right set setting, you know, maybe with a bit of a, the right push on the brain, people can heal themselves. Exactly. You know, they can, they can, they're capable of doing the work. Right. You know, obviously with some assistance, otherwise the, they wouldn't need the two facilitators or the, the therapist. But let, let's just help people get out of their own way and, exactly. and, and do what they, they can do. Like that seems to be sort of the ethos that's coming up in these protocols. Yeah. And, it, and you know, I've, I've often conceptualized therapy as like we're reparenting. And if you think of, again, parenting, you're, you know, parents, there is a secure base holding the hand, but the child is figuring out their environment on their own. They're making mistakes, they're falling. Um, and the parents there to hold their hand and support and kind of pick them up a little bit when they fall, but um, the, the child is doing the work. And so, you know, I think psychedelics is kind of the same thing. The, ther the therapist is there as a guide to hold the hand while the client does the work and they're capable of doing their own healing. They just need somebody to, to be a secure base uh, from which to do that work. Right. Absolutely. If you think about the kind of work that you do, Stacey, like I'm thinking of the EFT work, um, you know, based on what, you know, we've talked about in terms of like the, the research studies, um, the, the available data. Um, how do you see, you know, psychedelics as potentially uh, augmenting what, what is already a pretty powerful modality? You know, I'm thinking about, and, and maybe I can reflect after on schema therapy or trauma therapy, things like that. But in, in the kind of therapy that you do, like, how would you see some of these benefits dovetailing or augmenting uh, stuff that's already pretty good? Well, I think um, we talked about kind of this opening and access to emotion. So EFT, the whole premise is there's a, a secondary emotion kind of blocking a primary underlying emotion that needs to be accessed and understood and, and felt all the way through. I think psychedelics could be really useful in terms of accessing those underlying emotions more quickly. Um, and I think I, I want to highlight here with, with any kind of psychedelics, the analogy I've gotten is it, there's a lot of different ways to get to the top of a mountain. And it sounds like psychedelics are one way to kind of helicopter to the top, meditation, therapy. I want to ask you about that. And I'll, I'll make a note because I'm mindfulness, you know, acceptance, you know, Buddhism type principles. Yeah. I'll, I'll loop back on it. But yeah, okay. I like where you're going. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I guess I just wanted to highlight, you know, therapy can, I, I don't want to sell psychedelics as like to like the, the, uh, 
ever powerful or kind of the the cure, the all cure, but I think they can be really useful tools to get us deeper into the emotion quicker um, in conjunction with with EFT. So my yeah, my worry would be just knowing okay, knowing humans a little bit, knowing our culture right now. Uh, it's like everybody wants the quick fix, right? Like nobody wants to do the work. Right. Um, so it'd be like, Hey, I, I, so I could see an evolving sort of, you know, set of clinics, spas or, 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 or mentality was like, Hey, I'm going to go do uh, psilocybin and my life will be fixed. Exactly. Right. In, in, a, in a weekend, I'm going to reinvent everything. Um, I, I mean, I think that's probably not a realistic, uh, perception of this process. I just, I guess I just want to make that clear for, you know, people are listening or have further interest in it. I don't think these are magic pills. No. You know, and even my reading of the MDMA, um, you know, uh, literature and I do a lot of trauma work. So I'm interested in that and in, in listening to podcasts on it is that people make significant gains, but it's still not easy. Yeah. After, I mean, just because, you know, being alive isn't easy, frankly, but, but um, you know, it's not like people are magically cured, walking away with no worries at all. The trauma is completely done. All healthy relationships, all, you know, love, peace, and unicorns, all as well. Like I just, that's, that would not be an accurate representation of, of the literature. No. And, and I think we have to really highlight here, these are not necessarily medications in the traditional sense of a medication makes you feel better. Right. These are tools that are used to shake the snow globe, so to speak, and shake all of the trauma pain, hurt, uh, you know, questioning, you know, how you've understood life up until this point, shake it all loose. And now it's just all flying around. And so the integration of all those flying pieces is really important. There is no quick fix, although I suppose it's perhaps quicker than like years and years and years of meditation or therapy, but still not easy, still not a quick fix, still not a single dose and you're better kind of cure. Right. Do you have a meditation practice, Stacy, that you uh, that you use, or, or let's say aspire to use? <laughs> <laughs> I do. Um, I, th I suppose uh, I've I've been into yoga for about a year now. Yeah. I go to yoga a couple times a week, and I find that quite helpful. Um, and I've just recently started meditating, although admittedly not as much as I should. Um, we teach mindfulness as part of DBT, so the, right. the groups that I run. Um, and again, this concept of practicing what you preach, I felt like I needed to integrate it into my own life. Um, so I do only ten minutes a day at this point. Um, I've signed up for a 10 day uh, silent retreat. So I think I need to really dive deep into the practice because I think I'm not disciplined enough right. <laughs> on my own. Um, but yeah, that's where I'm at in terms of my own practice. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, I have been using the app Headspace uh, on and off, I think for like, I've had it for two, three years. I tend to go in, a, you know, classic bad patient. I tend to use it only when I am really stressed out. And then when things get better, it's like, oh, I'm good. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think this time around, though, I'm really, you know, partially inspired by, you know, getting ready for this podcast and just, you know, I've been, I think, really inspired to try and want to integrate uh, mindfulness into my daily practice. I try and do 20 minutes every morning, really as a sort of to get some of those same benefits. And if you look at the neuroscience literature, uh, the brains of, of people who meditate on a regular basis and, and who are proficient at it, they show similar connectivity to those folks who have, are taking psilocybin or, or LSD. It seems to be that it shuts down that default mode network and allows for a greater level of interconnection and expansiveness between the areas. And actually really curious what you'll, you know, how you would answer this question. I also find mindfulness similarly ineffable to, de to describe to people. Yes. I have a really hard time, um, 
selling it to people. Like I can tell them the neuroscience. I can say, okay, listen, it's sort of like, you know, the bicep curl of mindfulness is just having that non-judgmental awareness that you've drifted. You bring it back to your breath. You stay centered. And, but it almost feels like just kind of do that and trust me, you'll feel better. Right. It's so ineffable. And I think, um, I've been thinking a lot about this recently because, uh, uh, the concept of kind of mind versus body, because I think of emotion focus therapy, one of the core core skills is you do a lot of focusing in on the body where you what are you feeling right now in your body what are the sensations going on sensations being the root of emotion and so many of us being so disconnected from emotion that we start with sensation and then try to figure out what it is and usually it's this big ball of you know overwhelming (laughs) exactly and then we start to untangle the ball together um but i think mindfulness brings you into your body um and aware of those sensations um but again kind of a bit of an ineffable thing yeah when you it's almost like when you it's like trying to explain breathing to somebody right it's like you just you have to feel it out for yourself right um I've, i've had some really interesting experiences um you know meditating where i notice like I love the prompts in Headspace and they're not a sponsor of the program. In fact, we have no sponsors of the program. <laughs> if you would like to sponsor us, please yes. contact us. Yeah. Headspace. If you're listening, Hey, uh, I'm your guy. Give me a shout. Um, it's really interesting. They, they have prompts like note feelings, knows note. Is it thinking or feeling? And then is it pleasant, unpleasant or neutral? Even just that exercise I found to be hugely therapeutic and really eye opening. Right. It's like, wow, I don't realize how much I rehearse, what I'm going to say in the day for particular conversations. Like it's already sort of, you know, I don't realize how much I am ruminating about, about things. It's just a, you know, just, it's so easy to just to be utterly mindless a lot of the time. Exactly. And operating totally in language. I notice, like I narrate my life in my mind constantly and right. uh, my, my meditation practice has made that abundantly clear that I'm just constantly thinking and, and not often just experiencing. Um, and again, if we bring it back to psychedelics, you're, you're really in your body. You're just experiencing in all the senses from what I understand um, quite intensely. And, and so meditation is one way to get you there um, because in our day to day, we're just so distracted. There's a million other stimuli going on constantly. Yeah. And it's just to be, to be aware of, uh, of the impact that, that those are having. I also think I've, I've got a lot out of mindfulness, um, in terms of intention. Oh, I'm going to make up a word intentionality, right? It's like, what is, what are my intentions right now? I have this urge to say this. I have this urge to do that. What place is that really coming from? Right. And that's been so instructive and, and, um, you know, in, in sort of more Jungian terms, like shadow work, right? It's like, ooh, that's an, it's interesting that that's like, I've noticed that I want to do that. And it's from, it's coming from that place. Right. I, like, is that part of me? Well, yeah, I guess it is. What, what do I, so that non-judgmental part is really important though, right? Right. Noticing all the parts, even the dark ones. That's right. Cause as soon as you start judging, then you get shuttered to the basement, then it's operating out of your awareness. And then you're, then you're wondering, you know, how did I end up here? Right. And and if you think of so much pain is caused by trying to push away those shadows that are in the basement, um, when really they're part of us and we need to find a way to integrate them. Right. And and again, just loop, it all loops back to perhaps the psychedelic uh, medicines, again, to use that term a little bit loosely, but that's that's the term that's used. Perhaps they, they supply, you know, they're the torch in the basement that can illuminate what's really operating underneath the surface and help people to, to integrate. And again, in neuroscience level, that's, that appears to be what happens, right? You get with that default mode network getting shut off, you get forces of repression 
um, eliminated. And then you get a lot more of that limbic subcortical brain able to sort of bubble up to the surface. So it's almost like you, again, like it's like taking a flashlight into the basement and being like, whoa, I, did, I had no idea this stuff was down here. Right. Which, which I guess we should mention too. I mean, for the accounts of people having their experiences, it's often very scary. Yes. Or, or, or it can be. And I like this idea of, I forget if I had read this or if you had mentioned it to me, uh, there's no bad trips or good trips. There's only safe versus unsafe. Right. Right. Um, and so uh, teaching this concept of non-judgment to individuals on these experiences to be curious about whatever comes their way um, versus afraid of or negatively judging whatever comes their way. Because um, I think, no, I'm, I don't, I'm, I want to be careful, but in terms of the, the risk for psychedelics, uh, mushrooms and, and LSD, the physiological risks, as far as I know, are not that great. Right. My, my reading of it is that from an, let's say from an overdose perspective, like, you know, like a, people would be familiar with like a fentanyl overdose. Mm -hmm. Right. I believe with LSD and psilocybin uh, that there is effectively no lethal dose. Like it's, a, you know, people might have a very uncomfortable psychological experience, uh, but it would, there's no known lethal dose. Exactly. And there's no um, addictive. These are not substances that you Jones for or that you um, crave. No. And animals will not self-administer it either. Exactly. You know, they, like they, animals will administer cocaine till they die. They will not self-administer psychedelics more than once. Right. And in fact, I've, uh, I've heard them described as they are trait drugs. So they change kind of traits within yourself, um, opening you in, in ways versus uh, perhaps cocaine and stimulants that are state drugs that put you in a temporary right, state right. of bliss or pleasure or, or whatnot. Right. Confidence. Um, where was I going with this tangent? Oh, yeah. Risk. Um, and so the risk for uh, psychedelics, as far as I concern, I know is quite, quite low. Um, but the risk is a, a bad trip, which is what people describe as kind of an unpleasant psychological experience, which is why set and setting is so important. If, Like you mentioned, if you go into it with a, a, in a negative headspace, in an unsafe environment, right. there's risks to you there. And, and again, with your perception being altered, there's risks to doing something from that altered rece perception and that negative psychological state that could hurt yourself or others. Um, yeah. And to be, you know, we have need to be fair. There are accounts of people having uh, unfortunately died. Mm -hmm. It's very rare, mm -hmm. but you know, to be intellectually honest, there, there are instances where people under the wrong circumstances have ended up taking actions to harm, harm themselves. Right. Right. And uh, I think the, in the communities where psychedelic use is, or recreational psychedelic use is um, known to happen. Um, there are some organizations that are taking some steps to do harm reduction. So uh, there's an organization called Zendo that goes to large music festivals such as Burning Man. Um, I believe they're at Envision Festival, which happens in Costa Rica. Um, there's a group um, called, I'm going to forget the name, that does the Canadian festivals like Shambhala and Base Coast, um, where they uh, can trips at you. If you are having a bad trip, you, you show up to their tent and it's a safe environment and someone similarly to these psychedelic psychotherapy sessions just sits with you um, and kind of keeps you from doing anything that could harm yourself until the substance has left your system. Right. I, I know that the, um, the Johns, Ho Johns Hopkins studies, I, I believe they're available online, but I haven't tracked them down. I've just seen excerpts of them. Uh, they have sort of their, their flight instructions, you know, for participants in their psilocybin studies. And one of the key 
um, sort of, I guess, active ingredients in that protocol is if you see something scary, go towards it. If you see a door, open it. If you see a staircase, you climb it. If you see, you know, it's basically to go towards any opportunity that presents itself within the experience right. because that's where the learning is going to happen. And I mean, that, that's basically the way therapy works as well. Right. I mean, we're spending exorbitant amount of energy getting clients to move towards that exactly which they want to avoid typically. Exactly. My DBT clients uh, get to see me do a little dance every week um, where I say, <laughs> what do you do when you're afraid? You go towards the fear. Yeah. Um, but that is the exact premise of, uh, you know, I know in the ayahuasca research, uh, similarly, they say go towards the dragon when the dragon shows up, being going towards and being curious about whatever shows up for you, scary or not, because it's there. Um, running away from it is not going to make it any less there. Um, so let's go and explore it and describe it non-judgmentally and see what we can learn from it as opposed to kind of pushing it back down to the basement. Right. And again, that, that would be such an intuitive reflex for any therapist, right. In terms of the provision of therapies, like we, you know, when, when you see that first little well of tears, like, okay, great. We got to go there. You know, like, let's be present with that. Like what, what's coming up for you right now? We never say, Oh geez, let's, uh, let's change the subject. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Most days. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I know we got off topic, but did you want to mention how you see this applying to your PTSD clients? Because you do a lot more work with trauma than I do. Yeah. I mean, I think off the top of my head, one dynamic that I note um, a lot with trauma clients is, is shame and guilt. And, you know, we talked about sort of shuttering those parts of our traumatized, like it's like that traumatized self is so disgusting and shameful that we, the other parts can't, of the personality can't even look at it, right? It's like, it's like, let's get them down in the basement. They're disgusting. And what happens is that that part ends up bearing the burden of shame and guilt for all the other parts who just get to kind of go on with their lives, you know, guilt-free or shame-free. Um, uh, although that's not true because then that part gets more agitated that it's been abandoned and of course causes that the symptoms that you alluded to earlier. Um, so, and, and part of the reason, you know, obviously someone's, I'll t let's take sexual abuse in, in childhood. You know, I, you, th there's no way that a child is in any way culpable, blame, you know, harbors any blame or fault for any abuse that is, you know, um, directed towards them. But yet we see over and over again, this phenomenon of guilt and shame, you know, being embodied by folks who've had this experience. And uh, it really strikes me that a lot of it that is it a function is a function of many things, but a lot of it is is because of child encoding, right? Like it's too world destroying to think that you know a parent could come along and ran or an uncle or whoever come along and ran because we know it's family members typically, right? It's not that stranger danger is very overblown. Um, a cousin or someone could come along and render you helpless and you know abuse you in that fashion. So what? the child does is encode the experiences. Oh, adult, you know, I, it must be something with me. Right. Cause it provides a sense of control too. Right. It's like, well, you know, it's too, it's too dangerous to think about random bad adults. So I'll just think about my, my dirty, you know, gross self. And at least I can try and fix that. And then I'll spend the rest of my life trying to do that by being perfect and pleasing uh, so that uh, I can make up for the dirty, disgusting person that I am. I think what, I, what, what I would love, you know, to see is, whether a psychedelic um, augmentation of that kind of therapy would allow people to step outside of that childhood encoding. Cause that, cause moving those beliefs around shame and guilt takes so long. Cause it's, it feels like it's baked into the person's physiology, you know, like the body memories and 
and things of that nature. And a lot of it is, is cured in the relationship, right? Like they, they disclose things that are shameful. You don't run, you, you validate it's curing and healing. I, I would love to see again, if you were able to sort of dissolve that ego, which has a lot of that in, encoding in it, which is completely understandable how that happens. I would love for that person to be able to get a look in on themselves, their experience and their parts and be able to approach that with em empathy and healing and ultimately integration into a whole person who doesn't have to uh, sing to, to a, a whole person of which one part doesn't have to singularly bear that experience anymore. Right. So sorry, that was a bit wordy, but, but that's, that's just one example for childhood trauma. Yeah. And, and I think that's a beautiful, uh, you know, way of looking at it. And I think, I think the research is saying that that tool would be great for the, exactly what you're mentioning. Um, because we see with trauma clients, how long it can take to get through that shame, uh, the, the baked in shame. Right. And, and, and what I always try to explain to clients is, you know, they, they, they often come in with a rational understanding that, okay, I was five years old. I know that wasn't anything that I did, but what they feel is so, is so powerful and I guess what I try and tell them is like, you know, that's, that's a part of your body that's trying to protect you, but it's an outdated strategy, you know, right. that, that worked when you were five, but now, now that you're an adult, you don't, we don't need that anymore, but your brain is so leveraged on surviving that it's not going to give that up unless we provide it sort of gold standard proof that the coast is clear. Right. Right. And I, and again, I wonder whether the openness that might come with a psychedelic trip or MDMA, which is particularly renowned for that openness, right? Where people mm -hmm. can have their experiences without the strong emotional reactions that might just speed up that process of, of, uh, of integrating a new perspective. That's not only known, but felt. Right. Well, and I know they're beginning trials of doing MDMA in couples, uh, yeah. or, or in PT couples where one member of the couple has PTSD in particular. Right. And so if you can have that openness and get to that shame and kind of, uh, let it all out in front of the person who, you know, means the most to you versus your therapist. Um, right. So my, I, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we're not the people that mean the most to you. No, of course not. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think of it in parent child relationships or in, in couple relationships, if that can be your secure base or you can access these really deep secreted, uh, shames with those kinds of people, what a right. gift, uh, for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Um, and, and just building on that, there were, uh, Tim Ferriss recently had a sort of a panel discussion again around the launch of his, the, the research venture that he's, or uh, institute that he's uh, founded, or at least uh, financing. And uh, one of, he had a, a lawyer on and she was mentioning, you know, uh, I believe probably bipolar one diagnosis, but really long-term struggles. Uh, psychedelic therapy had really helped her and then uh, microdosing in addition. Maybe we can talk about microdosing in a second as well. Sure. Just again, as uneducated members of the public, just what we've heard, but just to round out the story. And she was mentioning that her and her husband uh, will do an MDMA assisted therapy session every two years where they talk about everything that's happened, the sort of vet all the grievances, but without the intensity of the feelings to go with it. So they can discuss it with openness and, um, and empathy and she said that tops them up for two years and they're, and they're, they're good. Right. Right. Which I think of, you know, that, that makes me think of my, so I work with a lot of individuals with borderline personality disorder where there tends to be, um, you know, pretty intense emotions, a bit of an intolerance of emotions and some difficulty in interpersonal situations like that. I'm wondering if down the line we can use substances like this um, to, again, facilitate effective interpersonal situations that are 
you know, if you have really good conversations um, in this open state versus this defensive self-protecting state that of course is developed, uh, like you said, uh, effective in an ineffective situation, probably given these individuals' childhood histories of right. constantly being invalidated and, and experiencing trauma and whatnot. Um, if we can use these tools to facilitate effective communication, um, it you know, we, we teach skills in DBT, effective communication skills, but if you right. could experience them in real life with somebody who matters with you, um, perhaps that would be a way to kind of make therapy work a little bit quicker. Um, you know, uh, the other thing with my, my borderline clients, there's a lot of suicidality. I, you know, I would say um, many of the individuals I work with are kind of chronically suicidal. Mm -hmm. um, I conceptualize suicidality as this, you've got all this pain in the basement. I just want to escape it. And so of course I fantasize about death on a right. regular basis. Um, and just thinking of the impact of, of thinking about dying every day in your life. I think uh, using psychedelics that opens your mind to your connectedness to everything in the world, how small you are in the world, but also kind of a sense of peace with that perhaps. Yeah. Um, you can relax a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. And perhaps maybe find some meaning or purpose that, um, can be very hard to see when you're that deep in this chronic space of feeling like, what's the point? Right. And I mean, we, we haven't talked about this yet, but there's ketamine as well. Okay. Um, I, I keep tabling all these subjects to get to be <laughs> a four hour podcast. But that's okay. But I, I do want to come back to microdosing just, just yes. so we can just mention it. Right. Um, but we, you know, ketamine's been, I've referred my client, a couple of my clients for ketamine uh, studies that have been, that were ongoing at the Royal ketamine in particular appears to uh, potentially help folks with treatment resistant depression and in particular around ac acute suicidality. Right. right? And um, you know, ketamine again also used as a recreational drug, but uh, it, it does appear to be used. Um, uh, there does seem to be some therapeutic value to it from a treatment resistant depression perspective. Right. And again, uh, for as far as I know with the ketamine studies, um, they seem to be using ketamine more like a traditional medicine where it's a single right. dose um, and, and there seems to be quite a, a significant effect on depressive symptoms and, and suicidality. Um, but I know that there are some research beginning to integrate the more psychedelic therapy protocols where there's a lot more of a set and setting, more time and in an integration piece. Um, and I'm wondering what they'll see as they kind of apply those protocols to those studies. Right. Because if they're, if they've been just been sort of, I mean, I think the clients that of mine that have had it, um, you know, in, in the context of a study, you basically are in a room, your blood pressure is being monitored, you're, it's administered through an IV and that's about it. You know, I, I don't know if there's an integrative or, or sort of, you know, the set and setting piece doesn't seem to have been sort of as actively integrated. Right. And as through our discussion, we've talked about uh, that being potentially really important. Right. One, one thought I just had um, was just as, you know, I could picture somebody sitting, you know, at home or listening to this in their car or whatever and being like, like if the brain can heal itself, you know, if we're making that case, why in God's green earth do we need all these compounds? Right. It's like, you know, don't we have the natural ability to get to the places psychologically that we need to go? And I mean, th I think I'd be curious to get your take on this, but I mean, one point I try and make to clients is that it's not clear at all that our, that the purpose of our brains is to be happy. You know, like there, there's no, basically, as long as you're reproducing, it doesn't really matter kind of what's going on upstairs. Um, it, it may be better and, you know, you can think of some evolutionary advantages, but our brain is not under any obligation to kind of make sense to us from that kind of a perspective. 
Um, it seems to be more about meaning than it is about happiness, more about being content than being in a state of, you know, um, euphoria all the time. Although, so I think we have a lot of kind of broken cultural tools and narratives around that. It's, it's more like if you're not happy all the time, you're doing something wrong. Right. Right. You haven't bought the right car. You haven't made the right amount of money yet. If you just have made this amount, it would all be good. And like, you can show the people that you can show people the data over and over again, that this doesn't, uh, you know, th these things that we think will make us happy. Do not, that this is a whole other podcast that, you know, mm -hmm. we can do. And if, there actually is a great podcast called the happiness lab. Um, I'm not sure if you've listened to that or not, no. but it's, it's really good. It talks about sort of the dynamics of happiness and you know what the science says about that. Anyway, that's just sort of me riffing on that idea a little bit. But the idea to me is why do we need potentially need assistance with compounds like this to get where we're going? Like why, why can't we just sort of do this? Oh, natural. And we've talked about meditation and, you know, maybe that's a road to get there, but um, do you have a thought around sort of where these should sit in the mix for us sort of philosophically um, in terms of, you know, being a human and regarding it as a tool or not? Right. Um, well, I think we have so many barriers in our daily functioning to accessing the stuff that we would need to, make sense of our experience. So, you know, what are the, the active ingredients we're talking about? We're talking about focusing inward on your sensations, um, really looking in the basement of these things that we've worked so hard to avoid. We have all these cultural beliefs about we should be happy and your know, life should look a certain way, or there's this prescribed path towards happiness, right. even though we know happiness is an emotion like any other emotion that's meant to come and go. We have all these negative beliefs about negative emotions, like you shouldn't feel those. Right. Um, we have our day-to-day -day jobs. We have all these stressors. We have, um, we're so disconnected from each other, from spirituality, from nature, from all these things that we know are meant to, um, or we know have positive effects on our physiology. Um, so I just feel like in our typical day-to-day, -day, there's so many distractions. And so if we are already somebody who has a really hard time going inward, um, who's got a lot of stuff in the basement, who's really scared to go there, who's never had a supportive you know, anchor or attachment figure, um, with you, you know, there's just so much to work up against. And I, so I think there is definitely, we can definitely go there on our own, right? The, you know, we, people have been healing themselves on their own for a very long time. And I guess just to be fair, people, these compounds have been used also for a very long, a time. Very long time. Right. And we never talked about ceremony and ayahuasca, right. but, uh, uh, ayahuasca and iboga are used, um, in, in, Amazonian cultures um, and South American cultures. Um, in other cultures, there's kind of this concept of a, a, a quest, a vision quest, where, right. where teenage boys are given some kind of psychedelic and kind of sent into the forest by themselves. So I think of even just that, the idea of a quest, right? Being sent by yourself in nature to go be with yourself and figure yourself out. We don't have that in our, in our current culture. We're just constantly stimulated and given all of these... Um, dopaminergic distractions, I, I, I would say, right? Like, like the flashing light on your phone. Right. That's the, that's finding fruit in the forest in today's world. Right. And so. Which is sad, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very sad. And it's um, not as if, you know, it has a different effect on our nervous system, I think, than, uh, than being, <laughs> finding fruit in the forest. Right. Um, and so. Yeah, that's a good point. They're probably actually. It's like um, the artificial flavoring in food has completely sort of distorted the way that we typically would detect nutrition in foods. Exactly. Right? So you're, you're eating tons of food. It tastes like it should have vitamins in it, but it has none. Right. And so it's just corrupted that mechanism of, of uh, regulating.
regulation and reinforcement. So yeah, I think it's, it's actually qualitatively quite different. Right. We've completely overridden our natural system that tells right. us when we're hungry and when we need, when we have a need, right? The drive system. We've right. totally um, screwed it up. So I think if that's just our hunger system, all of our other systems, given the way we live currently, are kind of on a, not the way they're meant to be. So I see psychedelics, I see meditation, I see kind of finding time to be silent or finding a practice where you're on your own and you're looking inward as a way to access all of the innate cues and signals of our drives that would allow us to do this healing. Um, but I just think so often in our culture, we don't make that time to do that inner work. Um, it's really hard to do. I I think of my most profound life experiences have been, I went hiking by myself, totally isolated in, in Spain for a week. Um, and you know, a lot of, personal work happened on that journey, but I think it was just because I was in nature on my own with no distractions um, and just totally in tune with my body and my mind, whereas I don't get that privilege really ever (laughs) outside of the yoga studio in my typical day-to-day. I think that's what I'm really enjoying about that morning mindfulness session. I feel so connected to myself for that at least 20 minutes at the start of the day. (laughs) But then, you, you, you know, you carry, the more you do it, the more you carry that with you throughout the day. But it's very easy just to sit down at your desk and all of a sudden you're basically working an hour ahead at any given time. Right. Right. So, you know, I'm wondering if it's a, um, you know, I, I have particular beliefs about you know, life in particular being the default setting is tragedy. And then you, you cultivate meaning to make up for the fact that you must live out this essentially what is a tragedy. Cause ultimately we'll, we'll all die. Right. You know, and without knowing what that means, I guess we can call it a tragedy, right? right. Death could be a beginning. Who knows? That's above my pay grade for sure. <laughs> let's say the least, but you know, it strikes me as if, if you're burdened with an essentially tragic situation to navigate, it, it might be a fight fire with fire proposition, right? Where if there are, you know, potentially tools that are safe and have data around them that allow us to uh, reconcile the tragic nature of our circumstances, then, you know, is that such a bad thing? Right. I think one thing I wanted to say on the podcast as well is like when I when I waded into you know it don't you know and, and probably if I reflect on the tone at the beginning of our of, of the podcast you know probably tentative and you know maybe a little bit nervous about discussing it right because it has typically been sort of a dirty word almost mm-hmm. but looking into this I mean there is so much research going on at high caliber places with really renowned scientists there's brain imaging going on neuroscience led studies I mean this is this is not in the basement of of some obscure university in, you know, wherever. In my estimation, I would say, if not staunchly in the mainstream, it's got its toe well into it. Right. Particularly with like recent, you know, uh, Michael Pollan's book. Yes. Um, So somebody who, you know, is a a layperson who dug right in, who with no invested opinion in, in, right. in, in this work, kind of diving in um, with the universities, like you mentioned, uh, several documentaries have come out recently. Um, the one that's coming to mind is one on dosed on MDMA-assisted therapy that kind of highlights all this right. work we're talking about. But yeah, it's definitely becoming a lot more mainstream. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it didn't feel nearly as kind of, let's say, quote unquote, controversial the more that I've read and watched, you know, many YouTube videos especially with uh, Dr. Robin Carr, right? You know, just the, the neuroscience fellow, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's there's real tangible sort of things here. I mean, again, that doesn't mean there's not risks. It doesn't mean that it's not 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 completely understood. Um, so I think, it, you know, it, it's it's good to move cautiously and to treat it as a evolving and emerging, emerging area of study. But uh, even if it didn't yield any, any therapeutic benefits, 
I think just the profound impact that these compounds appear to have on consciousness would merit that we look into this. Right. Um, just seeing that there are other states of consciousness available right. and, and what can we learn from that? Um, again, bringing it back therapeutically, I don't know. Um, I, I think so much of my clients with anxiety right. when I think of these altered states of consciousness, you know, clients with anxiety being so afraid of the unknown and what is uncertain, if we can kind of put them in a, in a world that's completely unknown and uncertain um, and they can tolerate it and find beauty in it and find kind of peace in it. Um, what an interesting way to, to kind of break that fear. Ultimately, probably anxiety does boil down to a fear of death. Right. Any Cause why would you be worried about anything unless it wasn't, you know, if you're, if you're not going to die, basically who cares? Right. So I think if you drill down far enough, it does roll downhill to some sort of existential angst. And again, these, these, compounds appear to provide a window into having that ex exact experience of your world dissolving and seeing that, that there's something beyond that. We're not going to get into the literal, like to whether that's literal or not. Nobody knows. And I know that's a big topic of debate, right? We didn't really mention DBT or DMT, excuse me, but um, dimethyltryptamine, which is made in our own brains, by the way. So people, but it's funny. It's both a illegal compound but our brain also makes it, right. which is which is very interesting. But folks who who use DMT will report leaving their bodies, meeting with entities, and many of them will come back. Um, they will swear up and down that they've had uh, an encounter with entities outside of the organ of their own mind. Right. Right. And. Uh... And so what can we gain from that, that kind of experience as a culture, as a society, you know, beyond just therapy, but what can we learn from that? Right. And it, it, I think that's really unclear. I don't know what it means, but I think, you know, a lot of people have, you know, we're going to weigh out there for t 10 seconds, but, you know, is consciousness uh, resonant to the brain or is the brain some sort of receiver of a field of consciousness that is perhaps permeates everything? Uh, I mean, I have no idea to the answer to those questions. But what if the psychedelics are a really critical tool in terms of exploring that? I, I don't know. That's that's something that comes up for me when I think about that. Right. And thinking about, um, you know, the tools we've developed and, and as scientists already these days, right? Microscopes and so many things that we use currently to see what we cannot otherwise see. Um, perhaps these are just another tool for seeing what we can't see and uh, looking into that, which we can't understand. Or I think at the very least understanding that we can't understand. Um, right. and, and there's a lot that we'll never know. And, and maybe can we accept that? There's something maybe a bit romantic about an ineffable experience, right? So much of our live, lives are defined by kind of predictability and, uh, you know, words work pretty well to describe things, but to have you know, if, if you go by the psilocybin studies to have a state of awe bestowed upon you, uh, that's right. probably a game changer in terms of how you view everything. And, right. you know, what, what would you what would you do with that? So I, I find that a really fascinating um, idea, both therapeutically, but also just existentially. Right. And obviously the existential uses would probably be the, the last to come online. Typically, it's, you know, you progress through recreational, then medical. <laughs> Right. Then, um, you know, then, then there's those other ways. Um, and I said recreational first on purpose because that's where, that's what happens. Right. Right. Um, microdosing before we forget. Yeah. Do you want to speak to that or? Sure. So as far as I understand, uh, there's been protocols developed uh, for psilocybin and 
LSD microdosing. Microdose meaning so a typical dose, so an effective dose of mushrooms or a, a dose, I suppose, as, as defined in the literature is one gram, enough to have some psychedelic effects, um, meaning altered state of consciousness or perception. Um, and so you do a tenth of a dose um, is considered a microdose. So there's no perceivable effects on your perception or your visual or auditory or um, any of your senses. Right. Like you're not tripping at all, quote unquote. Exactly. Right. Um, but there seems to be a neurogenic effect um, in that, you know, nerves are being generated. Um, there seems to be an increase in creativity, um, alertness. Um, and so it does sound like the research uh, increase in language capacity as well, as right. far as I understand. Um, and I think there's two protocols. There's uh, James Fadiman's protocol, which is two days on, one, days off, one day off. You will, according to these protocols, habituate to the effects. Right. So they, they want to promote um, the, the novelty effect of administration. Right. right. And then uh, Paul Stamets, who's a mycologist, his protocol is four days on, four days off or something to that effect. Right. And I believe from the research that I've seen that the neurogenic effects of psilocybin are actually greater at those sub sub threshold doses than they are at those heroic doses uh, that people talk about. Right. Which is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was really interesting. I, I learned that on a podcast recently as well. So the, these little doses uh, can can have more of an effect on your nervous system. And in fact, uh, they were talking about pairing um, a microdose with um, niacin, which opens up your blood vessels, using it to regain, um, you know, sensation or, uh, you know, just a physiological effect of opening up your nervous systems and, and right. generating nerves. I had also heard that they stack it with niacin uh, to prevent people from overdosing. Right. Because the, the niacin is, is sufficiently unpleasant in a high dose that you, as long as it's coupled with the uh, psilocybin or LSD, you would never go beyond right. uh, a, a certain amount. Right. That's kind of more of the pharmacological, you know, use of, because people aren't having really an altered conscious experience in, the, in a therapeutic setting. But, you know, I think we would agree. I mean, I have plenty of folks who have tried every antidepressant under the sun. They're, they have sort of poly -phar pharmacy strategies going multiple compounds administered. Um, and really, to my mind, with no uh, obvious benefit. Right. Right. But it does appear, again, the data needs to come in. It needs to be studied carefully, randomized controlled trials, you know, gold standard, you know, methods of research. But it really does appear that that there's emerging evidence that this microdosing, uh, these microdosing protocols may yield important benefits. Right. Right. Um, and I believe there's research going on with uh, Alzheimer's as well yes. in that microdosing domain, given the neurogenic effects. Right. Um, I wanted to mention, we just talked about kind of abuse really quickly. I just wanted to mention, um, I found really interesting about all these, you know, some people worry, you know, why would they're being used quite effectively for the treatment of substance abuse, um, um, psilocybin, psilocybin, at least as far as I, I know. Um, and then I know the iboga is being used um, in, in the South America for treatment of addictions as well. Really severe chronic addictions to really significant um, substances. I've heard, you know, applicability like the, for the opioid piece in particular, right, which is just proving to be so lethal and just such a disaster, you know, right. that these, these compounds may have efficacy in that domain as well. Right. Right. And so I think of, uh, you know, I think one of the concerns that I've heard discussed is why would you treat a drug addiction with another drug? Um, you know, and, and which is not uncommon. We use methadone as a treatment for sure. um, substances, but these are non-addictive substances. In fact, you know, you, you wouldn't crave these, these substances. Um, and it's, uh, 
these opening experiences that we're talking about, perhaps access to the pain that individuals are otherwise trying to numb out with addictive substances. Um, so I just wanted to highlight, I guess, uh, just mentioning the abuse piece there. No, that's a really important point. And, and again, without, you know, uh, waving the flag or becoming advocates or again, with all, all caveats present, you know, not advocating people, you know, go out and do these things. Um, there's, you know, like anything, there's a political overlay to all these things. And again, like if we're all willing to ingest caffeine every day, right? right? You know, to, you know, the average person I think is ingesting two to 500 milligrams. Uh, people are willing to ingest antidepressants. You know, we sort of socially sanction that. Um, the safety profile of alcohol is probably infinitely worse. Right. And and the psychosocial consequences are probably infinitely worse for alcohol than they are for the data that's around psychedelics. Cigarettes, uh, vaping. Right, exactly. So I think, you know, I wish we could have, uh, I think we're getting closer, um, but it feels like, you know, we need to find ability, a, a way to have better conversations and more honest conversations about the, these things so that if there's benefits that folks can benefit and if there's dangers that people can be aware like it's got to cut you know intellectual honesty is really important about these things right and you know the we talked about this concept of non-judgment we need to practice that uh, talking about these um concepts you know let's put everything on the table non-judgmentally right. and then we can make a decision from there but um we can't keep going into these discussions with with political uh fears or kind of preconceived notions right like wise mind essentially right exactly right so um Stacey, there's some questions that I, you know, I've, I've got some standard canned questions that I want to ask everyone who comes on the podcast. But before I do that, because I'm just mindful of the time, it's been an hour and 52 minutes already. Can you believe that? Believe wow. that? wow. Time flies, eh? Um, but, you know, before we transition to that, uh, is there anything that you wanted to add it or sorry, anything that you wanted to add or that you, f you feel that we didn't do uh, sort of justice to or uncovering this topic or? I think we covered everything that. I had hoped to cover. Right. Okay, perfect. And and I think what I'd like to do is, you know, we uh, we keep an eye on where the literature is going and, um, you know, maybe we revisit this discussion in a little while and just sort of see what's changed and what data has emerged and what new books or podcasts have come out around it. Maybe we, maybe we can do like a part two around this because I think I feel there's two, a couple of things. I mean, I feel we've just scratched the surface in some ways. I'm also thinking that, this discussion brings up so many interesting cult, um, sidebar discussions of just therapy in general right? because of the implications and, and just it forces us to think through the way that we do things in really interesting ways. Right. It's really opened up our minds. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Um, perhaps we can point people to um, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, MAPS is right. the acronym. Um, they are the leading organization doing a lot of this research, particularly the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy research. Their website, their newsletter, um, their Instagram, they they kind of keep people up to date on, on the research that's going on if people are interested. Everything is above board. All of the MDMA protocols are available to the public online. Um, and so uh, a great resource for people who are interested more in the research side. And then we already kind of touched on in terms of recreational safety and harm reduction. Zendo is the organization that goes to various different um, festivals uh, across the world. Um, and uh, tripsafe.com, I believe, and uh, rollsafe.com, I believe, are um, information sites on uh, harm reduction use for um, psychedelics and MDMA when they're used recreationally. If people are going to participate in it, might as well also provide information to go along with it, right? I mean, if we know anything from our jobs, <laughs> you know, people 
are up to all sorts of different things. And often think you know, it's better to partner with people in good faith and, and give them information than to pretend it's not happening or to judge. Exactly. Right. Are you okay if, we, if I ask you some questions here? I'd be really curious to, to get the different guests take on these, uh, on these pieces. And there's, sure. there's obviously no right or wrong answers. I just want to get a sense of this. If you could have lunch with any psychologist, living or historical, who would it be? Uh, what would you want to talk about? And if it's not a psychologist, recognizing there's other areas of, of influence, um, you know, again, like who, who would that person be and, and why? Um, yeah, it's a good one. I, I, you mentioned this question before we started today, and I don't know that I have a well-formulated answer, but who's coming to mind uh, is uh, Ram Dass, who was formerly known as... Uh, Richard Alpert, I believe. Yes. And he, he just, he passed away. Yeah, just recently. Just recently, yeah. Um, so uh, I find it fascinating, the kind of the intersection of psychology um, and the psychedelic world um, and psychology and kind of the yogi world and psych- like the spirituality and psychology intersections I find quite fascinating. Um, so I would have been interested to kind of see what he learned in psychology that then led him to kind of become more of a spiritual teacher. Um, yeah, I would have loved to have picked his brain about that. Yeah, he was a f- really, really fascinating, uh, really fascinating guy. Uh, such, such such an interesting life story. And I also just put a plug in for life stories. Uh, Rick Doblin, the uh, the founder of Maps. If anyone wants a study in the exercise of tenacity, uh, I think he might be your guy. Yes. Yeah, just just a really you know reg- regardless of what you might think about you know Maps or MDMA or whatnot. Uh, his story is really a really interesting one. We don't have to get into it now, but just just to sort of gently point people in that direction. Wonderful. Yeah. Do you do you have a favorite CBT intervention? Uh, and and what is your favorite? And you can't say a thought record. <laughs> <laughs> I really like um, accumulating evidence of an alternate belief. Uh, so once clients have identified kind of an unhealthy or unhelpful belief, right? Um, we kind of work together to define a belief that they would like to believe instead. Um, and then we work on kind of accumulating evidence to support that belief so that they can come to actually believe it instead of just intellectually knowing it, right. um, like a, a physical knowing it versus an intellectual knowing it. Um, I, I, I think of, uh, several of my clients who are working on, if I was somebody who believed that they were confident, what would I do? Right. Or, and so I often uh, encourage them to go about their life saying, what would Beyonce do um, as a way to accumulate evidence <laughs> of uh, what it would be like to be someone who was confident? Well, I think it's a really powerful intervention, right? Because then they're gathering data. We know the proof is in the pudding. You, you can't just talk yourself into it. You need to go out and live that out and then give yourself the opportunity to see what's what that strategy will yield as an outcome, right? Right. Right on. Um, if you could give any book to a fellow psychologist, what would it be? What's, what's the book that every psychologist should read? Uh, you, well, you mentioned it already. Um, the Body Keeps the Score right. um, by Victor van der Kolk. Yeah. Um, a book on trauma and, and kind of understanding trauma, um, both physiologically and, and psychologically. I feel like that's been one of the greatest books to read as a, as a therapist. To- totally agree. It's, it's, uh, it's such a good book. And in fact, I recommend it to clients as well. Uh, you know, it, it's obviously got a little bit more detail, takes you a little bit more under the hood. It may not be uh, a good fit for every client in terms of their interest or or background, but uh, I think it's a phenomenal, a must read for anyone that does uh, therapy. Agreed. Especially trauma therapy, obviously. What about for clients? What, what's a book that you, you want, you know, if you could get, you stand on a street corner and give out books to everybody, what's the one you'd be handing out? It sounds corny, but I, I really like uh, Brene Brown's Gifts of Imperfection. Mm-hmm. It, it really kind of helps clients delineate various values right. um, in their life and then kind of take concrete action towards moving towards those values. I feel like it's really lay language. Uh, it's 
um, I suppose for some individuals who have a bit of a, um, an ick factor for religious language, um, if you can get past that, because there's a little bit of religious language in the book, um, I find it to be a really good book for helping people clarify their values. Right. Uh, in Michael Pollan's book, when he talks about psychedelics, he's, he, I believe I'm going to quote him correct here. Perhaps he's quoting somebody else, but it doesn't matter. Spirit's the same idea. He was like, I finally understood what the word spirituality meant as if it was, you know, spirituality was something that only happened or was experienced by other people. Like mm-hmm. I finally got it. Right. That was his kind of reflection on that. So, um, yeah, if people can have open heart, open mind and, and, um, integrate those kind of other concepts in, then I think they're, they're the better for it. What's the one message that you'd like to leave with all your clients? Um, I suppose kind of talking, uh, you know, break, breaking down what we've talked about in terms of the effects of psychedelics, this concept of like being in the present moment and approaching everything with curiosity and non-judgment. Um, I feel like if you have those tools in your tool belts, life will be a lot more um, interesting and a lot less scary. So I feel like I try to leave clients with some kind of version of that. Right. Oh yeah, that's really powerful. I mean, I think that's the it's the mechanism of change, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody who listens to this podcast will be sick of me bringing this up, but like, sort of, it's that, it's that hero's journey idea, right? Is that there's a call to adventure? You turn it down at your peril. You need to go out. You're not safe anyway. You, there's no castle or the Shire or you know whatever that's built that will insulate you. The the uh, the badness is coming. You need to go out. Be brave deal with it. And then you get the reward. Humans have been watching each other for a long time. And that seems to be a tried and true method of going about life. And I, I hear a lot of that in, in what you're describing. Yeah. No. Yeah. And this idea of, yeah, exactly. Go out there, try, play, experience. Um, it's scary anyways. What's the yeah. point anyways? Might as well go figure it out. Let's go see. <laughs> right. Um, again, probably something I'll repeat on many podcasts, but I'm not going to try and censor myself too much. You can only do so many of these without repeating yourself. But, you know, the idea is like you get to pick the pain you experience. It's pain in the service of growth or it's pain that's just suffering. Right. Might as well pick pain in the service of growth. Right. If you're going to have it anyway. Exactly. Right. So. We do uh, it at the gym. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. We call it working out. Yeah. Right. Two more questions for you. Is there a new or exciting idea in psychotherapy that's captured your interest lately? And I mean, imagine psych- psychedelics probably maps onto that, but is there anything you'd, you'd add to that? Yeah. Uh, well, I guess one of the things that I took away from all the psychedelic stuff is this concept of, uh, I know in the, some of the protocol for the MDMA-assisted therapy um, work, they have an acronym for therapists saying, uh, wait, why am I talking um, for the therapists? Right. Um, I think I'm interested in kind of this concept of, humans healing themselves and us just being there as a guide. Um, you know, that, that's part of what drew me to EFT. There's a lot more kind of focusing and sitting with versus, uh, intellectually working with, uh, in in the way there are in some other therapies. So I think the psychedelic stuff and the, a lot more kind of silent, letting people do their own work. Um, I don't really know if that's a concept, but I'm, I'm interested in learning more and, and practicing that a little bit more. I think that's such a, such an interesting idea and uh, probably like with all, I mean, I think the last Christine Podesky workshop that I went to was all about getting activated and, you know, as the therapist, you know, mm-hmm. and not sitting back and, okay. and so, and, and not to contradict that idea, but it's, you know, there's probably many ways to do therapy probably depends on the client. Uh, probably things come in and out of vogue. Probably the best is the distillation of the greatest hits of everything. Right. You know, but I, I think probably if we all, especially a CBT therapist, we probably don't wait, quote unquote, un- nearly enough. Right. Right. We're always wanting to put a strategy in place or prompt 
an automatic thought or, or something. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I think, uh, perhaps maybe even just guide a little bit too much, uh, right. at, at least if I'm thinking of my own practice or an area right, that right. I want to work on. Interesting. And one last question where I'm going to go off script here, but it's one I'm going to start asking everybody. What's the thing you've been most wrong about in terms of where you started in psychology versus where you've ended up in terms of, you know, an understanding or, or an insight or an impression? What, what's shifted for you over time? I think I came into this field thinking that I would be helping people, um, healing people. Like uh, I was the active ingredient. Right. Um, I think I'm becoming more and more humble um, over time and recognizing that, again, like I'm, as I guess just mentioned that I want to practice more of it. I'm there to hold space. I'm there with some skill set and knowledge, um, but the client is there doing their own work. They're the they're the expert of their own experience. I'm no expert. <laughs> I just have a couple of tools in my tool belt. Right. Um, yeah. So I suppose rec- you know a lot more humility about my role, um, which is very helpful in terms of not taking on as much burden um, of client load. Although that's something that you know all of us are constantly working on. Always uh, reducing. Um, but yeah, I think I thought my ego <laughs> came into this field thinking like, I'm, I'm so special, I'm going to help people. Um, and I think I'm more and more I'm learning that, um, you know, I, I'm there with the person in the room, they're doing the work. Couldn't agree more. And it reminds me of just a real quick thing that uh, I believe it was uh, Connie had told me way, way back. We were reflecting on the lack of control that we often have over clinical outcomes. And, uh, you know, she quite wisely said, well, it can either be anxiety provoking or it could be liberating. You get to choose. Right. And I thought that was hugely instructive with respect to how we engage with the work that, that we do. Right. And I think we probably make way better decisions and way better judgments when we're coming from it at a place of humility and, and liberation as opposed to attachment and control. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think when we're so attached to the outcome and it means something about us, it's right. a disservice to the client and it's not good clinical judgment or less likely to make good right. clinical judgment. And it really seems like that captures a lot of the journey that people make from the beginning. If I reflect, reflect back on my own training, you know, you start off very attached to the outcome because it's a reflection of you. And then as you, as you get more seasoned and more experienced, you realize that, yeah, you, you're important. You got to do your job. You got to do it well mm-hmm. and be, you know, be the resident expert in the room, but you're not everything. Right. You're not even close to everything. Right. And uh, that's, that's a good place to end up. Like you can do your best work from a position of dispassionate advocacy right. in a way. It's like, Hey, if I was you, this is what I try, you know, this might work out for you based on what you've said. And um, it really gets tough when you start to, um, when your ego melts into the, into the outcome of the work. Right. That's, that's when bad things start to happen for everybody. So yeah, really, really, really deep thought from you, Stacey, to uh, for everyone to reflect on. It's, Thank re- you. it's really good. Okay. Well, I think that's probably it for our conversation. Like I was alluding to before, I'd love to have you back for a part two. Awesome. Uh, as I we keep, it. yeah, that's great. As we keep an eye on the literature and see where things go. I think it's definitely well, a topic well worth revisiting. And uh, I know I'm going to take a lot away from today in terms of reflecting on even just some of the, uh, both the psychedelic piece itself, but also some of the, the, the more interesting tangents that came up. So same. Thank you. And thank you for having me and for, you know, organizing this podcast in the first place. No problem. It's been, it's, it's turning out to be, uh, well, A, a lot of fun. And uh, I'm really getting to know my uh, colleagues uh, a lot better and having some really, from my perspective, rich and rewarding conversations. So I'm extremely grateful to have this opportunity. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Okay. Well, we will uh, talk to you folks later and uh, everyone have a great day. Take care. 
Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.